Hi, this is Eric Archilla, co-creator of 1865, the audio drama. Get ready to get steeped in some good conversation with Candy and Ashley on Scandal Water. Welcome to Scandal Water, where the tea is hot and the conversation lively. Your hosts, Candy and Ashley, will discuss a peculiar story somehow related to the entertainment industry. This podcast might not change the world, but it just might satisfy your thirst for an intriguing tale. Oh, it's that time of day. Tune in and hear what the ladies say. It's time to bend your ear when the silver screen appears. Stories about the stage and screen and everything in between. So come on and join the fun. The curtain opens in three, two, one. Hello, Ashley. Hello, Candy. Here we are, ready to end season one. Can you I believe know. it? We're at the end of the grand experiment. You know, I'm so excited when I look back and think about the fact that we launched on October 12th, and here we are in August, Yep. and we have 51 episodes that are out behind us. I know, I yeah. know. It's pretty impressive. I'm and, pretty proud of us. Yeah. If we could toot our own horn for just a second. <laughs> <laughs> and super grateful to the listeners. Yes. You guys have been so sweet, so supportive. We just can't thank you enough. So this episode is going to come out on... On August 30th, mm-hmm. and then we are going to go semi dark. So, we could we say it's like a twilight? <laughs> a t- a sure. twilight. It's twilight. The next season is going to start on October 4th. Can't wait. Yes, we've already got some really cool ideas we were just talking about. Because you know, October is Halloween. It's spooky mm. season. <laughs> and But in the meantime, for September, we do have something planned for you all. So, what we're going to do is we have contacted some people who mm-hmm. have maybe a special connection right. to an episode and we have asked them to record a new intro for us. So we have these special guests and what will happen is it'll be an episode you may have already heard but you're going to hear a new intro to it. So our special guest will intro and then the episode will start as you are used to. So it is a rewind, September Mm -hmm. rewind. So it'll just be September. We'll have four episodes, some of our most popular ones. Yes, I think so, yeah. But some of these intros are really I know, we've already heard them. It's exciting. (laughs) So September will be great. And then again, new season in October 4th. Awesome. Hey, before we go on, can I put a quick note in here? Just a shout out to our listeners who have started to support us through Buy Me a Coffee. I know. I can't believe it. So wonderful. Thank you, guys. It means a lot to us personally. But practically, it helps to offset our costs Mm -hmm. so that we can keep doing this. So a big thank you. If anybody's wondering, we chose Buy Me a Coffee because it's very, very friendly. It's secure. You don't have to sign up for any anything or register. It's just really easy. And so if you would like to support us as well, you can do that by going to buymeacoffee.com slash scandalwaterpod. Thank you guys. Yes, thank you. All right, you ready to start oh, let's this? Let's do it. This is going to be a big one. I feel like <laughs> this gonna is going to be long. a super episode. It's going to be so long. Okay. So what we've done is we've each taken episodes. Yes. And we have gone and looked for updates. Right. But we really don't know what the other ones found. Exactly. So, and we've got some audio clips to sprinkle in here and I was in charge of audio clips most of them right do you have any no I don't think I do okay so I did all the audio clips so Candy's going to be doing her research amazement and I've got I went out and got people to do the work for me (laughs) by sending audio clips no I'm just kidding but I want to do a little bit of a celebration first if that's okay okay can I give you some scandal water stats please for our first year so if anybody's interested I've got some interesting stats and this will just be in our little history that we can look back on so 
show our top five countries candy because we are international now. Yay. <laughs> our top five countries are, of course, the United States, right. good old USA. Second one is Canada, mm-hmm. United Kingdom. Hello to our friends over in the UK. I love you all. <laughs> Australia and Ireland round nice. out our top five. Yes. Thank you to all of you from other countries who are listening to us. Thank you so much. We love that. Yes. And there were more, but those were our top five. Okay. All right. You ready for our top 10 states? Yes. Let me do a shout out to Kentucky coming in at number one. But guess who's number two? You'll never guess. Just wild speculation. Texas. Yes, you got it. Yes. (laughs) Well, and that's because I have an idea. Oh, you looked. No, no. I'm just saying because, spoiler alert, we had a lot of Texas friends who came out for Selena. Yes, we did. so much love. But they also came out for Bernie and for Honk the Goose. Okay. So we had two Well, that makes sense now that you think about it. But they are number two. Tennessee, number three. Tennessee. Ohio. Hi to Ohio. The District of Columbia. Which is so interesting. That is very interesting. So hi to my FBI agent who's checking (laughs) in on these episodes. Then after that, we have Pennsylvania. Pennsylvania. Georgia. I love it. Georgians. Indiana. Neighbors. Yep. Okay. New York and California rounds out the top 10. Well, that's very well-rounded. It is. I mean, we've, we've kind of and actually, hit the whole country. We have hit the whole country minus seven states. So the only states that have not downloaded us is Maine, New Hampshire, Kansas, North Dakota, Montana, Wyoming, and Alaska. So if you guys got any friends, at least get us one download. I'm sorry. We sound like super nerds, but we're just really excited. <laughs> we are. This is super exciting for two ladies from Kentucky who just started this on a whim. Yeah. I love those stats. Thank you. I thought you'd find that fun. That oh, fun. oh, oh. One more for you. You guys might be interested in this too the top 10 episodes okay so we already know what number one is mm-hmm. i'm wearing a shirt in honor of number one frozen in time an interview with charleston's tommy do is number one by a long shot it so is. good job tommy yes Dew. tommy number two is staging a murder which mm-hmm. was our very first episode then number three as you already indicated selena the white rose yes. came in at number three now four five six and seven and eight are all so close they're just it's- neck and neck neck and neck Mm -hmm. we have dreaming still dreaming of a white christmas part one jaws part two Mm -hmm. so apparently people just like certain parts (laughs) and then may i help you fall asleep thank you to hannah you're not crazy you're being gaslighted which is one of my favorites that we've Mm -hmm. done then our update episode from christmas another glass of tea what brewed up after the our episodes aired that's actually tied with gaslighting okay straight up tied then may i help you solve a crime and rounding it out are honk and cheryl allison nice Yes. Very cool. I love it. Okay. So that was all our stats. Okay. And then I think I actually have the first update. Yes. Because we're going in order of the episodes. Correct. So we did not do, since we've already done an episode for the first three months, we're not touching those again. Mm -hmm. This is starting in January with the episode that Jonathan Mertz recommended to us. That's right. A listener request. Yes, it was. And it was called Cheaters Never Win or Do They? Episode 16. I'm going to admit off the top, I didn't go back and listen to this episode. So there may be some repeating here, but... (laughs) Just in case there is, just forgive me for a little bit of that. So a quick recap. As we talked about in episode 16, Mickey Mouse is going to enter the public domain in 2024, 95 years after his creation. This is the length of time after which the copyright on an anonymous or pseudo-anonymous body of artistic work expires. However, there is a catch. It is only the original version of Mickey. And I think we talked about this, but I don't remember. Yes, we did. The more rat-like looking character from Steamboat Willie. Mm -hmm. 
Later versions of Mickey are still under copyright protection until their own 95-year mark. Okay. Right. So Winnie the Pooh and a majority of his friends, except for Tigger, who is protected for another year, entered public domain this year. Mm-hmm. And Ryan Reynolds has already used Pooh in a Mint Mobile commercial. And writer-director... I haven't seen that. I hadn't either, but he, mm. he did use okay. it. Writer-director, I hope I'm saying this correctly, R-H-Y-S Rise, Waterfield has written a horror film starring Pooh and Piglet called Winnie the Pooh Blood and Honey. Ooh. Yeah. <laughs> so while he is now allowed to make this film, he is not allowed to put Pooh or Piglet in clothing that audiences may associate with Disney, such as Pooh's red shirt. Ah. This is because while a copyright may expire, a trademark does not. The red shirt is trademarked by Disney in much the same way, I believe it was universal trademarked Frankenstein's monster's look of the mm. green skin, the mm-hmm. bolts in the neck, etc. So when if, if you ever put on Frankenstein, you cannot make him look like Frankenstein's monster from the universal picture. Right. That's trademarked. So this director has acknowledged that he was very careful to make sure his audience knew this film was not associated with Disney in any way. In an interview with Variety, he said, quote, we've tried to be extremely careful. We knew that there was this line between that and we knew what their copyright was and what they've done. So we did as much as we could to make sure the film was only based on the 1926 version of it. So no one is going to mistake this for Disney. Mm -hmm. When you see the cover for this and you see the trailers and the stills and all that, there's no way anyone is going to think this is a child's version of it. Now, this fellow named Daniel Medea, I hope I said that correctly, is the associate director of the documentary film Legal Clinic at UCLA School of Law, as well as a longtime media and entertainment lawyer. He says, quote, Disney has been very active in trying to extend the copyright terms. Successfully, they have had their term for Mickey and so forth extended, but I doubt they're going to be able to get additional extensions. I think this is going to be the end of the line, Mm. end quote. I remember when we did that episode the first time, it made my brain hurt because of all the legalities. And as you're explaining this right now, I'm thinking how tricky it is to separate copyright from trademark and what's allowed and where have you crossed the line. It just sounds so complicated. That's because it is. And it looks like I've got the next one too, which is Frozen in Time, an interview with Charleston's Tommy Dew. And we actually have a message from Tommy himself. Yay. I'm Tommy Dew, and I'd like to thank the listeners of Scandal Water Podcast for making my episode 19, Frozen in Time, the number one downloaded episode of the first season. I love talking with Candy and Ashley. They are enthusiastic, dedicated artists, and they work really hard to support the arts. I'm honored to be a part of the show, and I'm pleased that it had the reaction that it did. I think one of the things that resonated with Candy and Ashley from my tour is Charleston's commitment to the arts through the centuries. Theater, literature, you name it, we have a long-standing relationship there. From Porgy and Bess to Southern Charm, there's so much here, and that's one of the things that we delve into on a daily basis on my tour. If you ever come to Charleston, please look me up. I'd love to meet you, and I'd love to get into that content firsthand. Thank you so much, and go Scandalwater. If you guys follow us on social media, you probably saw that I finally got to take a Tommy yes, Dew tour in June when we went on a cruise. And we was it left. everything I told you it would be? It was and it more. It was delightful. It was so great. He's so knowledgeable and personable. It it was wonderful. He's pretty much the best. Yeah. 
Well, thanks. Thanks, Tommy, for sending in that little audio clip for us. Yes, thank you very much. And thank you to all the listeners for making him number one. That's right. So the next episode we're going to talk about is whatever happened to Betty and Joan. And Ashley and I wanted to touch on the fact that for this episode, we actually received a little bit of criticism. And before I address that, I just first want to say, I'm sure we make plenty of mistakes or, or sometimes because we're talking off the top of our heads, we'll come back later and we'll be like, oh, I wish I'd said something differently. But you guys have been so kind and so supportive of us. So thank you for being understanding of the mistakes I'm sure that we do make. Mm -hmm. But in this particular instance, we had a couple of fellas who weighed in to give some very specific feedback around this episode. And they did it on our YouTube YouTube site. Yes. Yes, Because we we upload them there. Sometimes it's video if we had an interview, Mm -hmm. but a lot of times it's the audio version, but it's on our YouTube channel. So in this case, one gentleman weighed in and he had some very strong negative reactions. And then the other fellow kind of responded to him and agreed. And and they basically, I think, to summarize, felt that the research was not as well done as it should have been, as Mm -hmm. thorough. They also, one gentleman commented, he felt like it relied too heavily on a single source. And both seemed to feel that it was biased against Joan, kind of in favor of Betty. So, you know, you hate to hear criticism. It makes you stop and think. But I think they had a point when I look back at it, because I think I said at the top of the episode, I had found an article I really did like. It had a timeline. And so I did pull very heavily from one source. It didn't corroborate it as much as I normally do. I, mm-hmm. As an educator who's taught research to kids for a long time, I really do believe in finding credible sources and corroborating and being evidence-based. In this particular episode, I wasn't as much. I think there was a lapse. Mm-hmm. So if you're listening, fellas, I fully acknowledge it. Mm-hmm. Sorry about that. That was one of our very early episodes that we had banked prior yeah, to launching. And so I I feel like, you know, you learn and you reflect. I feel like I've been really conscious with the other episodes, but thanks for calling it out. You know, mm-hmm. if you have feedback, we want to hear the great feedback. We want to hear how we can do better as well. Mm-hmm. So we appreciate your comments and thanks. Yeah. All right. Next up, I have a little surprise for you. I got Cheryl Allison and Honk, A Girl, A Goose, and a Fairy Tale Ending, episode 22. And there is so much going on in her life right now that I thought it would be better to be heard from her. <gasps> Yes. What? So I, I had, did not know about this. I know this. you didn't. So she is actually on a vacation in France. And if you look at her Instagram right now, you'll be super jealous. I know I am. She's in Paris and she took time out of her vacation to record an update for us. And I would like to play Cheryl. it for you. Yes. That's awesome. I am so happy to be back on Scandal Water podcast and give you an update on Honk, our celebrity goose. So many incredible things have happened since the last time we all spoke with each other. The film to date has been in 24 film festivals worldwide. We have won several awards, including the Audience Choice Award at Dances with Films, which was a big film festival in Los Angeles. We even won audience favorite as far away as Brazil. It has really continued to bless people all over the world. And for that, I am really, really grateful. Honk has been acquired for distribution. I have never had a film distributed 
before. So this is a really big deal. Vision Films has acquired the documentary and I'm very excited about that. Vision Films is one of the top independent distributors in our industry. And so this fall, and we're aiming for mid to late November, it will be distributed throughout North America on streaming online platforms, which can be anything from Amazon to iTunes to Google Play, as well as cable networks like Dish and Spectrum and DirecTV. And that's the first rollout. And then they will represent it worldwide. So that's exciting. Honk is also going to air on PBS throughout Texas this fall. And that's very exciting. It's through a program called Frame of Mind. Hopefully that can roll out to other PBS stations as well. Let me update you on Rogers Wildlife Rehabilitation Center. They're working so hard this summer because of this extreme heat. Birds are falling out of nests more. I guess, you know, broken dry branches, things like that. They've had an influx of baby egrets that have fallen out of nests. Parents will abandon them when they fall. So they have been getting dozens, like a day, of baby egrets that have to be fed around the clocks. Uh, And they're working in, you know, 100 plus degree weather. So they've been working very hard. I've been working with them to help with fundraisers and and get their needs out, but they never get a day off because they have hundreds of birds and waterfowl. So they're the true heroes in uh, in this whole story, really, in my opinion. And so Kathy Rogers is just uh, wonderful. And something that's really fun that your listeners might like is that <laughs> I always look for signs that Honk has uh, sent me some kind of sign. One day, a friend of mine was on a golf course, and she sent me a picture of a goose, and it looked just like Honk. So she knew... Uh, of course, and of course I did too, that it was a domestic goose and had been dumped there. It was smaller than Honk, but I mean, looked just like him, even with the little black dot on his nose. And it was a little girl and she was trying to hang out with some Canada geese that are wild and they were ignoring her, but she was just so scared. And so I'm sure she was like an Easter goose that was bought and, you know, then they They get bigger and they become a pain and people dump them and they think they're going to have a good life and they're not. And so that's why we're trying to raise this awareness. She couldn't fly like domestic, you know, geese and ducks can't. So I raced um, to Rogers Wildlife and got a crate and went with my spouse and we went to the golf course and our friends waited for us and we spent about two hours in a hundred degree heat trying to get her and finally we were able to kind of herd her into this sort of middle of the circle that we had created amongst us and I was able to get down and sweep her up real quick and put her in the cage, got her to Rogers. And I have to tell you, we named her Junie for two reasons. We rescued her in June and I was calling her Junior because of Honk Junior. And she is so happy. She has acclimated so incredibly. She hangs out with a Beetle Goose, who was Honk's best friend. And now he loves her. And she also hangs out with another goose that was recently dropped off at Rogers because it was rescued. And his name is Conway and he's very domesticated, such a sweetheart, very much like Honk, comes up, likes to be around people. And so she is in love with them and she follows them everywhere and they swim in their plastic pools and she's having an incredible life. And so I couldn't believe it that here it was it was almost two years since I had rescued Honk or a little over two years since I had rescued Honk and here I rescued another one and that she looks just like Honk was just surreal. So that's really the update on Honk 
been getting incredible press. The website is honkthefilm.com. His Instagram is still up, honk underscore the goose. I highlight a lot of the other birds and waterfowl there now, you know, since honk has passed on. But his followers and fans seem to love that. And they love seeing everything that the incredible staff does and Kathy out at Rogers Wildlife. So that's been a real blessing that they have stuck around and really supported Honk. And so I'm just so excited they're not going to have to wait too much longer to see the film. So listen, I just really uh, appreciate all that uh, the two of you have done to support Honk and the film. It's just been an honor to talk to y'all again and circle back with you. Love like Honk. That's what I say after every screening. Hopefully people will continue to do that. All righty. Thanks so much. I love that. Yes. You know, Honk's story is so uplifting it and is. positive. It is. And it makes me happy that it's continuing. so successful. Yes, it's continuing. It's The film is getting out there. His mm-hmm. story is getting out there. Mm-hmm. And that message of love is And just spreading. a reminder, mid-November, start looking for it. Sounds ah. like we're going to be able to watch it. I can't wait to see it. I'm so excited to me watch too. it. Me too. And thank you, Cheryl, for yes. sending that update. We so appreciate it. All right. So my next one is for Marilyn, The Blonde Bombshell's Mysterious Death, episode 29. I got a couple things to talk about. Firstly, the Met Gala, which was a benefit for the Metropolitan Museum of Art on May 2nd, 2022, had a theme of America, an anthology of fashion, with a secondary theme seeming to be the Gilded Age. I couldn't really, there was two different things they said were the theme, so I don't know which one, but both of those were out there. And quite a sensation was caused by Kim Kardashian, who wore the actual, what I'm calling happy birthday, Mr. President dress for her walk down or up the stairs of the Met. She was late, possibly in keeping with Marilyn's reputation the night she herself wore that dress, Mm -hmm. or possibly just to cause a stir, which she did. After the (laughs) function, she came under fire when photos were shared that seemed to indicate that she had ruined the dress by her body stretching the seams. And if you remember, we did share a picture of that happening. Yes, we did. Well, not the the scenes, but that she had worn it. wearing the dress, Mm -hmm. yes. However, she appeared on the Today Show and refuted those rumors. She claims that she worked very closely with Ripley's Believe It or Not, who bought the dress in 2016 for $4.8 million. Yeah. Both Kim and Ripley's maintain that Kim wore the dress for no more than three to four minutes. Here's a quote for you. Quote, from the bottom of the Met steps where Kim got into the dress, which I'd like to know, where did she change at the bottom of the steps? (laughs) That's a good But okay, but they're (laughs) saying from the bottom of the Met steps where Kim got into the dress to the top where it was returned, the dress was in the same condition it started in. And that was said by Ripley's VP of Publishing and Licensing, Amanda Joyner, who was continually with the dress the Mm -hmm. day of the gala and during the transport from Orlando to New York. And I recall she also lost a lot of weight. Yes, yes, I have that too. Okay. Mm -hmm. Ripley's is also on record as saying any stretches in the fabric were there well before Kim wore the dress. Mm -hmm. Here's another quote. A report written on the dress's condition in early 2017 states, a number of the seams are pulled and worn. This is not surprising given how delicate the material is. There is puckering at the back by the hooks and eyes, among other instances of damage. Mm -hmm. End quote. Kim also says she went on a strict diet, like you said, mm-hmm. and lost 16 pounds in three weeks and forewent any self-tanner lotion or any other kind of body makeup that could have damaged the dress. 16 pounds in three weeks sounds very unhealthy. It does. Yeah. Well, that's that's <laughs> something else. I'm just talking about the dress. I, I gotcha. Kim's, Kim's life is her life. 
Most notably, Kim Kardashian did not pay Ripley's Believe It or Not to wear the dress, nor did the company pay her. Rather, Kardashian made a charitable donation to two charities in the greater Orlando area on behalf of the company. Mm. And that was a quote. In the Today Show interview, Kim seems thrilled to have been given the opportunity to wear the dress, especially after she learned that some of her fans had, quote, no idea who Marilyn Monroe was. Really? Yes, ma'am. She said, quote, I respect her. I understand how much this dress means to American history, end quote. Nice. Well, that's yeah. that's a nice quote. It is. So my opinion is, sounds like it's okay. Mm-hmm. I mean, it got it out they were there. very careful. They were very careful for, and, and maybe it was a tie into this, the thing I'm going to talk about next, and that's why they were trying to get this dress out there to get the word out about Marilyn. But the next thing I have to tell you about is the new Marilyn Monroe movie. Okay. To sum it all up. The new Marilyn Monroe movie, Blonde, is based on a book of the same name by Joyce Carol Oates and is a fictional retelling of Marilyn's life. Once the trailer dropped, fans had some very mixed reactions, with most of the controversy settling on three things, in my opinion. Mm -hmm. Number one is the NC-17 rating, which is said to be because the film will portray a fictional sexual assault scene. Number two... The fact that this is being marketed as a biopic, but is actually, once again, a fictional account of Marilyn's life. Number three, Anna de Armas' Cuban accent bleeding through. So people feel as though Marilyn is once again being exploited and just want there to be a film that showcases the real her, the Mm. full, complex, sensitive, fragile woman that even 60 years after her death seems to be brought back to either make money, stir up controversy, or titillate viewers. This is now we're switching to my personal opinion. The trailer I thought looked magnificent. Mm. It was incredibly edited, but I had no idea it was based on a fictional book from the trailer. It was, to me, presented as a type of biopic. Now, as far as honest portrayal i think she's going to be absolutely phenomenal i read that she worked for nine months with a dialect coach and while i did hear her native accent leaking out it did not diminish the quality of her performance for me i also don't know why the press is focusing on her being a quote-unquote bond girl and landing this role because they're saying former bond girl lands the role of Marilyn. Yeah, why when... should that be a factor well because prior to any bond film she was the lead in the absolutely incredible knives out and her acting ability was more than proven to me especially in the scenes with christopher Plummer, which i'm going to put one of those scenes in the, the show notes. Well, I also don't like the assumption that you can't be a talented actress if you take certain uh, roles right, because right. people people are versatile. People right. have a broad range. But my point is she was in Knives right. Out and had this amazing role. And she then she was a Bond, yeah, and yeah. then she was a Bond girl, but they're focusing on the Bond girl, I guess because it's a sexy role, so they're comparing it or maybe they're trying to hmm. minimize like, oh, she was just a Bond girl. No, yeah. she has more than proven herself and and I think if anybody could bring out Marilyn's vulnerability and fragility it's going to be her. Okay. She was amazing. Okay. So it's the rating and the content. I am disappointed that it's fictional because I think they could have found plenty of material to tell a true life version of Marilyn's story. But unfortunately, I think the tagline for this film seems to be Marilyn's continual curse, which is watched by all and seen by none. Ooh. Yeah, there's that. Wow. And I have heard nothing about this. This is oh, really? so far off my radar. Okay. So that was that was all new information yeah. for me. And of course, to our viewers, you know, take caution when watching it. It is NC-17. I don't know what that means as far as Netflix goes. We've never really had a film that's been rated that on Netflix. But, hmm. you know, we can't, we can't say watch or not watch. We can't recommend it. You guys make your own choices. Well, that takes us to Pod of Tea, doesn't oh, it? Oh, yes, yes, yes. And I... I have an audio clip from our friends Emma and Jack. 
Hi Ashley and Candy, it's Emma. And Jack, hello. Congratulations on your first season of Scandal Water. What a, an accomplishment, what an achievement. And thank you for having us on your podcast once to talk about tea. And dinosaurs. And dinosaurs. <laughs> Inevitably it went to dinosaurs. We've been really busy over summer, haven't we? Just going out and about and we're off on a trip to Derbyshire today. Lovely. Pod of Tea, my podcast will be back hopefully very soon. <laughs> yes, it will. It will. And Jack, what have you been up to? Uh, just working on loads of YouTube videos and yeah. doing work. Exactly. Yeah, so we're busy bees. But yes, congratulations. I hope you're having a lovely final episode of this season. And we'll talk to you soon. Ta-ta. Bye. <laughs> they are just the cutest. I love them so much. <laughs> I just love them so much. So thank you, Emma and Jack. Yes, And just you. as a reminder, Emma's podcast is Pod of Tea. And Jack is over at Terror Dome 3000. And we will put that in the show notes. But speaking of dinosaurs, which I feel like Jack and I could at any moment speak of dinosaurs. <laughs> by the time this airs, Jurassic World Dominion will have released an extended cut of the film for streaming slash purchase. And if you remember, this is something that Jack hinted at during his interview. And I'm happy to say that the director has said there will be that original five minute prologue put back in the film that I said I would have started oh, it with. Yes, yes, that's going to be along with eight more additional minutes of footage and other fun goodies too if you're the type that likes bonus footage and behind the scenes footage. But that's all going to be Who doesn't? I don't know. <laughs> we all do. Awesome. Well, I think the next episode for which we have an update would be May I Help You Help Yourself. I think we're in May now. So mm. don't have a lot here. Just a little anecdote. You'll remember that in our episode, we focused in on courting and also Jackson Galaxy and that cat whispering angle. And so my friend Jennifer, by the way, she's a dear friend, but she is also such an incredibly supportive listener. She's always sharing our episodes, which we so appreciate. Well, after hearing me comment that I should go by Total Cat Mojo because I was having that issue, remember, Mm -hmm. with Lila and Leo not getting along, she surprised me with the book. Oh, what a good friend. I know. Now, here's the thing. I've not actually had a chance to read the entire book because it's been an incredibly busy summer. Yes. But I have skimmed a few sections, specifically the part that talks about introducing a new cat into a situation where you already have one or more cats in the home. Okay. So what I wanted to share was this one little story of of something that I tried. But, But first, I should give some context. Even without using the book, the situation had improved a little bit. Yes. Lila's been taking more ownership of the home. She's been coming down the steps a little bit. She and Leo will come in contact and there won't be a fight. There'll be some tension and they'll, you know, it'll be like a standoff where they're staring at each other and she'll do like this low growl, but but they're moving closer. Okay. So that had happened It's kind of like an episode of Moonlighting. <laughs> <laughs> that was an interesting connection. <laughs> and the other thing I should say is my son is also between apartments and he's moved back in. So, oh. so Lila's having a lot more company at Good. night too. Good. All these things said, as I was sitting in my office the other day playing with Lila, she suddenly tensed up and I thought, uh-oh, look over and I see Leo, Leo is in the doorway. Now, Lila is in her little crouching tense position. She's kind of making that low like mm, sound. Mm-hmm. Leo's just eyeing her up, right? And I thought of something that I saw in the book when I was skimming. Oh, 
Okay. Now, what I did was had some cat treats nearby. Yeah. Grabbed the cat treats and I put one in front of Lila. I put one in front of Leo. They both just had to bend down. They eat it. And then I took another cat treat and I put it about six inches in front of each of them so that in order to take the next bite, they had to actually move at least six inches towards each other, making the the gap a little more narrow. And they both did it. And Mm -hmm. see, here's what I learned from my quick skim. Jackson Galaxy is very detailed and he is step by step and that man has a lot of great information. And had I had his book prior to bringing Lila into that home, we would be in a very different place because proactive versus reactive would have made all the difference. But I I remembered that he had said food is so magical. You can do so much with it. One of the things he had talked about was that if you can start, you know, he had a lot of other advice too, but it's this one piece was if you can get your cats to start eating closer and closer to each other, then they start to associate very positive, happy feelings. Mm. You know, oh, when I'm near that other pet, that other cat, good things are happening. I'm eating some food I like. And they start to have these positive associations and that promotes better feelings toward each other. So it ended up, they ate, Leo wandered off, but I felt felt a little successful. Accomplished (laughs) even. Yes. So there's my one little update from May I Help You Help Yourself. And also a little teaser, we reached out and at some point there's the possibility of an interview with Jackson Mm. Galaxy. Very cool. We'll see if that we'll see if that pans Comes out. Comes to fruition. Yes. And next I have May I Help You Fall Asleep, which is episode 35. And a thank you to those who ventured over to our YouTube channel to give the interview with Hannah a look and a listen. Because as we said, we do publish the audio version of most of our episodes over on our YouTube. But sometimes if it's an interview, we will publish the video too. Mm-hmm. And we had 2,721 views of wow, that. Wow, that is amazing. Yes. That's exactly what I wrote, which is amazing. (laughs) (laughs) She and Jeremy have had a very full summer. They recently went over to London to film a bunch of collabs with other ASMR artists. And in Hannah's world, she just reached over, or they just reached over 90,000 subscriptions to their YouTube channel. Wow, what an accomplishment. Amazing. Very good. And in their personal news, I have a very sweet update for you that they are now engaged. Aw, congratulations. Yes. yes. I'm just thrilled for them. And I I wish them every bit of happiness possible. Well, that was a very positive update. I loved hearing that. I have one that's not quite so uplifting. Okay. Um, The next one that we're going to address is May I Help You Solve a Crime? Which was one of our top 10 episodes. This was this was an interesting one, but a lot has happened since that episode came out. So first, just a quick note, just this past Monday, August 8th, there was a new development in the Gabby Petito case. Yes, I'm glad you saw this. I was yeah, going to tell you about that. a lot of news reports about this. In fact, I'll just read the headline from one People Magazine article because it kind of spells it out. Family of Gabby Petito will file $50 million wrongful death lawsuit against Moab police after recorded encounter yeah yeah and i i saw that and i i don't know if what you're gonna say but i saw a lot of the comments were actually ag- against this mm. a lot of the people com- 
commenting said, you know, the police did absolutely everything they could mm-hmm. have in the situation. And if it was Gabby who went back to him. So that was just what the commenters that I was reading saying. So what yeah. did you see? Anything? Well, I I was basically basically just going to summarize uh-huh. the, the lawsuit. lawsuit itself. Okay. Yes. So you guys will remember that this is based on that footage that came out where the police officers, after receiving a 911 tip from someone mm-hmm. that Brian had been seen in a public place having hit Gabby, mm-hmm. they had pulled their vehicle over and this video went everywhere. Mm-hmm. And so the allegations in the lawsuit are basically that because the police failed to act in a way that they should have, mm-hmm. that it left Gabby in harm's way. And ultimately, of course, you know, she did end up getting murdered. Right. So their points in particular, one is the lawsuit is going to argue that the police should have taken the 911 caller's report more seriously, that if it was said that he was striking her, they should have taken that mm-hmm. more into account. Mm-hmm. Another point that they're going to try to make is that the police officers failed to recognize warning signs of domestic violence. Mm-hmm. And in fact, paperwork that the police filed after the incident categorized the entire call as a mental health crisis. Mm. And they feel that had it been seen as an incident of domestic violence, it could have changed everything in the way that they handled it. And then their last contention was that the police should have reacted differently when they saw the evidence of things going on, such as the cuts on Gabby's cheek. Mm. They said that she, I didn't remember this, but it said in this article that she told the police she'd received it when Brian grabbed her face violently during an argument. But then remember, she did tell the police on this footage that she was basically the instigator of the fight. So she gave them a different report. But those were the key points that came out in Mm -hmm. the news article. And they're going to be trying to to sue yeah yeah this is very very recent who knows where this will go but that's that's just a quick update on that we actually have a second update that's also this episode dark yes it's dark and it was very surprising this one totally took me by surprise so you guys will remember that part of our episode focused on the murder squad because the angle was that citizens can help solve crimes. And Mm -hmm. so the Murder Squad was a podcast that talked about how the everyday citizen could help to solve cold cases. And because we were talking about them, we mentioned specifically those podcast co-hosts, Billy Jensen, Paul Holes, and... Since that aired on May 17th, a lot has happened. Yes, and it it happened like shortly after it aired. Yes. Our timing is just wacky sometimes, you know? It is very interesting. Now, you guys all know we have to record two, three, sometimes four weeks in advance because Mm -hmm. we have to have time to edit and Mm -hmm. get it ready for release. So it aired on May 17th, but Mm -hmm. we had recorded it well in advance of that. Yeah. On May 20th. There was a statement issued from the Exactly Right Podcast Network. That is the network that runs or did run the Murder Squad. Mm -hmm. Here is what they tweeted. It's the end of an era. Jensen and Holes, the Murder Squad, is going off the air. For all of our hardworking citizen sleuths, past episodes will be available until August 1st, 2022. Fans can look forward to a huge announcement about new shows coming soon to Exactly Right. Stay tuned. So Exactly Right released that tweet. They did. Okay. But that's all they released. Okay. And so I found this Rolling Stone article that came out on July 22nd. It was written by Brenna Eirlich and Andrea Marks. And it kind of traced the whole timeline. So I'm pulling a lot of information from them. I want to give them credit. But here's how this played out according to them. Okay. 
They said that this podcasting company, which, by the way, was founded by Karen Kilgariff and Georgia Hardstark, who are co-hosts of My Favorite Murder, okay. that's all they offered. And so- That's when, all they said about this. Right. When okay. people would question or comment, the company, the podcasting company, really wouldn't respond. Well, this just fed rumors and mm-hmm. got the mm-hmm. public more, um, what's the word, fired up, I guess. It also got them a lot of negative reviews on Apple Podcasts, because I looked at that, too. Oh, yeah. Okay. Because they wanted them to, to speak out about this. And yes. they were they were leaving them negative reviews because they would not say anything. Interesting. Yeah. Well, that's happening. And then in June, two podcasters released episodes where they went public with allegations of sexual misconduct against Billy Jensen. And which one was Billy Jensen? He was not Paul Holes is the one who helped solve the Golden State. He was okay. you know, he was the former FBI okay. cold case. And the other know. fellow was just sort of a reporter. He's a, yes, an investigative okay. journalist gotcha. who's focused a lot on crimes and yes. So after these two podcasters released their stories, other women started coming forward. Mm -hmm. More allegations were coming out about inappropriate behavior on Billy Jensen's part. Mm -hmm. And then somewhere in here, Paul Haynes got involved. Now you asked who Billy Jensen was. Another thing that he did, you may know him from this, Billy Jensen and Paul Haynes had worked with Patton Oswalt to help finish Michelle McNamara's book, I'll Be Gone in the Dark, after she passed away. Okay. So Paul Haynes kind of got involved in this controversy to the point to where Billy Jensen's lawyers actually issued a cease and desist against Paul Haynes because apparently there was, he was either offering some criticism or helping some of these women to tell their stories. I'm not exactly sure. Okay. Now, to kind of just follow the one story that was a little bit more publicized, one of those podcasters, Jen Tisdale, claimed that Billy Jensen had slapped her during a consensual romantic encounter. Billy Jensen denies this very publicly. He he denied it. He made a formal statement on his website. It's still there. And he also made this denial when he was talking to reporters for Rolling Stone. Now, his version is he claimed... This lady had pursued their relationship. She was kind of the one who was initiating a lot of things. Mm -hmm. And he, on his website in his formal statement he publishes a bunch of her texts yes is he is he married or anything he is but he says they are in an open relationship oh okay so did she know that he said he was very open and that he's open with everyone about that no did his wife know that they were in an open relationship (laughs) well is that news to her (laughs) i i think his okay his version is that they are okay this is a thing yes now his side of the story regarding Jen Tisdell's allegations is that there was never any slap. There was flirting, again, that he felt like she initiated on many occasions, and, and he acknowledged he flirted back. There was a romantic encounter that he stopped before it went all the way. Mm-hmm. He says he did not physically harm her, as she claimed, but feels that because she was angry over his rejection during this encounter, mm-hmm. that's when she started getting her friends, including Paul Haynes, to help launch this public smear campaign against him. Mm -hmm. And he also said that he thought that Paul Haynes might have already had some professional jealousy and that's Mm. maybe fueled his fire to kind of jump in on this. Now on the flip side, this lady and Paul Haynes say all this is ridiculous. Mm -hmm. They say that Billy Jensen had already had women making allegations against him before before this ever came out. In this Rolling Stone article, they do even overview five different sources 
who share some of their allegations. I'm not going into okay. all of that at okay. all, but what I will touch exist. on, what I will touch on is that several stories came out about some alleged inappropriate behavior that occurred at the last exactly right Halloween party. Oh. And this Rolling Stone article shares that Billy Jensen admitted his behavior at the party caused a workplace investigation and ultimately led to the cancellation of the murder squad. Dang. And a quote from the article says, quote, in response to a detailed list of questions from Rolling Stone, Jensen apologized for some of his alleged behavior, denied other parts of it, and told the magazine he has a drinking problem coupled with mental health issues and has entered rehab to address them both. So since all of this... He has, of course, lost the Murder Squad. Yeah, show that's awful that we've for his about. co-host. Who? Well, we'll or, talk about okay, that. Okay. Okay. Yes. Other fallout. He was on another podcast called The First Degree, and their other host told Rolling Stone that he is no longer a part of that podcast. Boy. The article said that his upcoming book, Killers Amidst Killers, Hunting Serial Killers Operating Under the Cloak of America's Opioid Epidemic, they said it was going to be indefinitely pushed back. But I looked this morning and it looks as though it came out, but without any fanfare. I think uh, they must have like canceled a lot of the rollout okay. and the publicity, mm -hmm. but I can see it. It looks like it's and out there. And you could order it? it yes. You it, looked like it you could order it. It looked as though you could order it. Okay. So I think it's out. But yes, his co-host, Paul Holes. Yeah. has moved on without him because oh. I was listening to a podcast one morning and heard a trailer. This was released on August 2nd, and it says he is now part of a new podcast called Buried Bones, along with Kate Winkler Dawson, and it will be starting on September 14th. For the Exactly Right yes. Network? So maybe that was the big news. Is they're that, just going to move that's on? That's one we, of the okay. new shows. I, okay. It sounded as though they have several, okay. but Paul Holes is now in a new new show. Hmm. So there's our update mm -hmm. for May I Help You Solve a Crime. That's sad. Yeah. Well, sad and disappointing. Mm -hmm. Like, like you said, I did not listen to them just because I didn't. I don't have time to mm -hmm. check out all these things. But how do you feel about it as a listener? I liked their show, yeah. and I, w I was a fan. Yeah. In fact, I think back in that episode, I didn't re-listen, but I remember being like, "Billy, you yeah. know, I'd, we'd love to interview. Come talk to us." And so it's just disappointing, mm -hmm. you know. I mean, right now, of course, everything is allegation, allegation, yeah, sure. but. Just hated hearing all that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it is disappointing. Well, should we move on to Selena? Oh, yes. We rounded out May with a listener request, so mm -hmm. it didn't actually fit our May I Help You mm -hmm. theme, but it was a very, very popular episode. Again, a shout out to our Texas listeners. Thank you. We loved seeing your comments on our Facebook page. There were so many lovely yes, tributes mm -hmm. and, and comments about how much selena meant to these people in the past and still to and this still day do. yeah so it was really touching but one of the things that we did talk about in that episode was that there was supposed to be an album coming yes. out yes found some information in variety and also on the today show it's coming out by it the is. time this episode airs it's it out. will be out so oh. the Quintanilla family and Warner Music Latina, by the time this airs, will have released a new album from Selena. I listened to this. We'll put it on our show notes to get the excitement started. They have already released a remixed version of a song called Como Te Quiero Yo A Ti, which is going to be the first single on this album, which is going to be called Moon Child Mixes. Now, is this with her voice aged up? Or yes. It is. It, let me, I'll okay. share with you. 
here's exactly how this plays out. Okay. This particular song, Como Te Quiero Yo A Ti, has been re-released once before. So this is actually the third version of the song. Okay. It was originally recorded in 1987. And according to the family, a majority of the songs on the album were recorded when Selena was between the ages of 13 and 16. A.B., her brother, said it took over a year to complete this process of digitally altering the music to portray the vocals and the overall sound quality as accurately as possible. So it sounds as though they've definitely tried to adjust it a little bit, either because it was older audio, oh, sure. but also to try to kind of make her sound older, sound the way she would sound now. The new album will include 10 never before heard songs oh. and three that are new variations of previously released tracks. A quote from Selena's sister Suzette was this, it truly feels like she went into the studio again and mm. recorded it. It's pretty incredible. Mm. Now, remember, we mentioned that there was some controversy. Yes. Some people felt that this was not a good idea. Yes. And so they asked them about it, um, A.B. and Suzette, her siblings, in this interview. Did they think it was being exploitive to do this? Yeah. So here is a quote from her brother, A.B., to address that question. What we're doing is honoring her memory, her legacy. That's what it's about. Mm. So before we move on to our June episode, should we take a break? Let's do it. And we're back, ready to talk about Jaws. Woo, Jaws. Yes. I have a couple things. I know okay. you've got the bulk of this one, but I found a trailer for mm. The Shark is Broken. Okay, The play. Good. And I also found a trailer for Bruce, which is based on the Jaws log. So I'm going to put both of nice. those in our show notes. And then just a couple days ago, there was this YouTube video called Steven Spielberg Directing Style Explained. Oh, shoot. I did not write down what the YouTube channel was, but I will put it in the show notes. It was wonderful. I actually ended up subscribing to oh, this YouTube cool. channel. Uh, Studio Binder, maybe? So if, if that's right, I'll keep it in. But if it's not, I'll cut it. Seven, and the video was called Seven Ways He Crafts the Ultimate Cinematic Experience, hmm. which is basically everything I would want to say, only much more thoughtfully and eloquently <laughs> stated. And it's kind of like they listened to our podcast and said, we're going to do this better. <laughs> so, uh, <laughs> we're going to one-up you. Yeah. And, and that's cool. I mean, they did, so it's fine. You know, they were able to use video and talked about it. It was really, really a good video. Here's the final quote from the video. What makes Spielberg the master of the blockbuster is his ability to portray believable people in unbelievable circumstances in a way that gives the audience the ultimate cinematic experience. How does he do it? And this is kind of summing up what the video was about. He tells stories about characters growing up putting them in massive sets which surround small subjects, coloring scenes to emphasize the spectacle around them, and shooting them with an active camera. He immerses us in his world through continuity editing that focuses on faces. Oh, yes. Mm -hmm. Along with dynamic sound design and music, which guides our emotional experience. Those are Spielberg's rules and other blockbuster filmmakers have been following in his footsteps ever since. Anyone can be the next Spielberg. All you need is a camera. End quote. So... 
I have wow. a little, I have a little, however, I do have a bit of a comeback to that last bit of the quote. Is that all I need? <laughs> a camera. <laughs> a camera? Because I have that. And I am not Steven Spielberg. <laughs> so I think it's important to note that we can all have the same accoutrements, <laughs> but it's our essence that makes our projects unique. I don't think Steven's in any danger. <laughs> yeah, I think he's safe. But honestly, <laughs> it's interesting that this person ends with all you need is a camera mm-hmm. after listing <laughs> about seven or eight of the most accomplished skills that he thinks, you know, Steven Spielberg exemplifies. I know. So I thought that was kind of a little humorous at the end. Like, all you need is a camera. (laughs) And all those things. And the things I just listed. As Bailey Saren says, nay, nay, I say. (laughs) Nay, nay, sir. Well, I did find some good stuff on Jaws too. In fact, I'm really excited about this one. Yes. Okay. So my friend Christine gave me a book that I love and I'm, I see future episode Mm. potential, you know, material from this book down the road too. It's called Behind the Horror, True Stories That Inspired Horror Movies, written by Dr. Lee Meller. And so it had this one chapter on Jaws, Mm -hmm. and I wanted to basically follow up on two different angles, I guess you might say, that they brought out in this chapter. Okay. Now you'll remember that in our episode, you commented at one point on the the clothing that the men were wearing on the boat. And then we also talked about Quint being a little, what's the word, obsessive. Mm-hmm. You know, with sharks. Yeah, my thing was that him and Richard Dreyfuss's character were dressed the same, and mm-hmm. Roy was in black, I believe. Yes. Well, okay. I think this book might have shed some light oh. on some of that. Okay. Because it turns out that Quint was based on a real shark hunter named Frank Mundus. Oh. Okay. So I'm going to tell you a little bit about Frank. Frank had a lifelong love of the sea. In fact, by the time he was 19, he already owned a charter fishing business, and he named his first boat Cricket after Jiminy Cricket. And then after he was married and they had their first daughter and he was continuing with his business, he bought a second boat, a custom-built 42-foot long boat that they called Cricket 2. And they actually had to live on it as their family home for a time because, you know, trying to make Mm -hmm. ends meet. Mm -hmm. And he kept that till he died, by the way. So the family moved to Montauk on the South Fork of Long Island, New York. They weren't making a lot of money. But one day on a charter fishing trip, Frank noticed this group of guys got super excited when he caught a mako shark gave him an idea he decided you know what i'm gonna market this differently Uh so here's a quote from the book posting a sign reading monster fishing via the cricket too frank mundus successfully rebranded himself as an adventurous leviathan hunter Ah. clad in a safari hat diamond studded gold earring and sporting a shark tooth dagger with a jewel encrusted hilt end quote They started making a lot more money, moved into a house, had more kids, and he was off and running. So over the course of this man's lifetime, he caught seven great white sharks. But the one that really put his name in the books was back in 1964. He caught one that weighed 4,500 pounds using only a handheld harpoon. What? Now, the book used the term claimed. Okay. The book said he claimed it was 17 and a half feet long. Okay. So I'm not sure if it was really that long. Uh-huh. I don't know. But by now, this man had a reputation. They were calling him the Monster Man. And it was not long after this that Peter Benchley oh, okay. ends up on his boat on a trip. <gasps> Peter. And Peter Benchley, writer of Jaws, saw Frank using his, quote, trademark method of harpooning sharks with lines fastened to barrels 
to exhaust them, mm. end quote. So everybody feels really confident this that Frank it. was an inspiration for Quint. Now, just to follow Frank's story a little bit more, Frank is quoted in the book as saying, quote, I respect white sharks, but I'm not afraid of them. Whenever one got away, I felt that he had won the game. Mm. This is where I respected him. After all, it is just a game we're playing. But now, later in his life, the book pointed out that his attitude towards sharks changed mm -hmm. and that he actually started advocating for shark fishermen to release the sharks mm. they caught. And it made me wonder, if because Peter, remember Peter Benchley mm -hmm. became such an advocate yeah. for sharks and for just ocean life in general, yes. that I wondered if, if he took a page were, out of his yes, book. Yes, if there was an influence there or if they just reached these attitudes individually. Maybe. You know? That so is very interesting. I, I feel confident he yeah. was basing a lot of that attire mm -hmm. directly on, on what he saw. So a second update is, this one got me, and you're, you're the one who actually brought this to my attention. It's a question I ask, isn't it? You, you told did. me that you found the answer and I don't remember what my question was. I think you were looking at some, I don't know, websites yeah, yeah. or some information about It was a comment, Jaws, right? A YouTube you comment? Yes, you saw a comment about a tragedy surrounding a man named Captain McVeigh. Okay. And in the book that I've already referenced, they told this whole story oh. and it got me. Oh no. Yeah. So here's the situation. You'll remember back in the episode, we talked about that fabulous monologue that Robert Shaw yes. did as Quint, where he talked about the USS Indianapolis tragedy. Yes. And then in our episode, we kind of gave the story behind that whole occurrence. Well, I'm about to give you a little bit more, okay. all right, because this is going to build on that. Okay. So part of this will be a little bit of a review, but I think with some details added that we didn't actually say in the original episode. So you'll remember the ship, the Indianapolis, which was called the Indy, was on a top secret mission. They uh -huh. were supposed to deliver important parts that were necessary in order to create that atomic bomb called Little Boy that would end up being dropped on Hiroshima mm -hmm. in 1945. And this ship had to take these parts to the island of Tinian because that's where the scientists were doing the work of creating mm -hmm. this bomb. So the USS Indianapolis completed their mission. By the way, it was captained by this man, Charles B. McVeigh III. And not only did they deliver those parts on July 26, but it was noted that they made the trip in record time. So they were really going Ahead of schedule. It. Yes. So after they had dropped off components for the bomb, the ship then headed for Guam, where it was supposed to switch out a huge number of sailors. They had a lot who had completed their tours of duty. They had a lot of new sailors who were coming on deck. So on July 28th, the ship headed for the Philippine Island of Lady, where these new crew members were supposed to get training. Mm -hmm. Now, I should say that in addition to the book, I was also pulling information from a Washington Post article. So in this Washington Post article, it said that Captain McVeigh had requested an escort for protection while traveling through enemy waters, mm -hmm. but that request had been denied. So around midnight on July 30th, a Japanese submarine fired several torpedoes at the Indy, and two of those torpedoes did make contact. Mm -hmm. In about 12 minutes, the ship had capsized and sunk. The crewmen who survived and were in the water were approximately 280 miles from land. The radio operators had managed to send off some distress signals, okay. but those were not answered. Now, we talked about how awful it was in yes. the first episode. Yes. This book had some quotes from survivors yeah. and some details that I didn't see in my first round of research. Yeah. 
this was the most horrific experience for these people. In addition to the awful shark attacks and losing their friends and feeling threatened themselves, they brought out that these men were dealing with no food. Yeah. It was burning heat in the day with no escape, no relief from Mm -hmm. it. And one man said it was like a mirror because you're in the water and the the part of you that's... Yes, the reflection. Mm. And he said you would pray for the sun to go down and then within a short amount of time, it would become so cold that you were afraid of hypothermia and you were praying for the sun to come up. On top of that, people started suffering from delirium because I'm sure some were having mental breakdowns, but also some of the men became so thirsty and they were surrounded by water. Mm -hmm. They started drinking it and then they had saltwater poisoning and that would lead to, you know, delusions. So it was just absolutely awful. The ship was supposed to arrive, their destination, on July 31st, but even after it didn't show up in Lady, no one raised the alarm. Because they were so far ahead of schedule. Well, no, at this point, remember, they've already delivered. This is them going to the next destination where the men were going to get received training. One source said that it was just an error, you know, on the part of headquarters. One source had speculated maybe it's because what they were doing had been so top secret that communications Mm -hmm. didn't, I don't know, but whatever the the reason, nobody went looking for them. So it took approximately, this is just a rough estimate, three and a half days before a plane was out one day doing routine patrol and spotted sailors floating in the ocean. It was at 1025 on August 2nd, 1945. These men had drifted apart from each other over the course of this time. So they were found in several groups across nearly 200 miles of ocean. Wow. Now, because of that, you couldn't rescue them all quickly. It took almost 24 four more hours before the last men were pulled out of the water. And the whole time, sharks are still attacking. All these things are still happening. They couldn't throw a boat or something down there? Well, they were, they were, they were throwing things, but it just was this big, long process because they were so widespread. The USS Indianapolis, I think we did say this in our first episode, this tragedy is still the single greatest loss of life at sea in American naval Mm. history. And no one wanted to take responsibility. Mm -hmm. A few of the servicemen from Lady who had not reported that the ship was missing, that they didn't show up on time, did get a reprimand, Mm. but they went after the captain. That's what happened. The captain of what? The Indy. Why? How was this his fault? They court-martialed Captain McVeigh in November of 1945, accusing him of two things. They said he failed to order his crew to abandon ship, and also that he didn't follow a zigzag pattern when he was navigating his ship through enemy territory, which is what you were supposed to do at that time to reduce the risk of being hit by an enemy torpedo. Mm-hmm. So they quickly realized the first charge of, of negligence because of not telling the crew to evacuate, to abandoned ship was not going to hold and they Mm -mm. let that go because Mm -hmm. the ship went down so quickly yeah but they stuck to the second one they really pursued this idea that he put his ship in danger because he did not follow this zigzag pattern this is so interesting to me the captain of the japanese submarine that sunk them that fired the torpedoes actually came and testified at captain mcveigh's trial i guess it would be that it wouldn't have made a difference that had he been zigzagging that wouldn't have kept him from hitting him with those torpedoes and would not have saved the ship. Wonder why he did that. I mean, that's great. He's helping this guy out. It caused some controversy. Yeah. But yes, he actually testified on behalf of Captain McVeigh. Now, he still got convicted. He was convicted of that second charge. The Washington Post had this quote. The conviction meant that of the almost 400 U.S. captains whose ships had been sunk during the war, McVeigh was the only one to have been court-martialed. Indeed, he was the only captain in the history of the Navy to be court-martialed for the loss of a ship sunk by an act of war. And... 
the survivors didn't blame him. Oh, good. They they realized he couldn't have done anything. This yeah. was not his fault. Yeah. However, the people, not all of them, but some of the family members of the sailors who had died yeah. did blame him. Oh. And they sent a lot of hate mail oh. and some, there were a lot of harassing phone calls. Yeah. And so a man named Doug Stanton, who wrote a book about this whole tragedy, he was quoted in this Washington Post article. So he had a quote from his book that said, he, meaning Captain McVeigh, read every letter he received and took them all personally. Oh. So in 1978, this has now been years later, obviously, but when he was 70 years old, Rear Admiral Charles McVeigh III went out on his back porch and he took his life Is this what, by is this suicide. In, inside Jaws? Remember they had the, the fellow that did that? Was that him? I don't know that. Okay. But I don't remember that from Inside Jaws. But okay. he was holding a toy sailor that his father had given him mm. in his hand. So this caused the survivors to mobilize. They were very upset by this because they had never blamed the captain. And now they wanted to clear his name. Yeah. So they started lobbying, they were gathering signatures, they were visiting Washington, but they were having trouble convincing the chairman of the Senate Armed Services Committee to take the exoneration resolution to the Senate floor so it could be put up for a vote. So what happened that put it over the top was that same Japanese submarine commander who had fired the torpedoes that sank the ship, his name was Mokutsuro Hashimoto, he sent a letter to this chairman of the Senate Armed Services committee and his letter said that he wanted to join the quote brave men who survived the sinking of the indianapolis in urging that your national legislature clear their captain's name and then later in the letter our peoples have forgiven each other for that terrible war and its consequences perhaps it's time your peoples forgave captain mcveigh for the humiliation of his unjust conviction Now, I don't know where this fits in here, but the book said that there were some declassified documents that came out at some point that revealed that Captain McVeigh's superiors had known of the danger when they sent him into that area mm-hmm. where he ended up getting you know, mm-hmm. his ship torpedoed mm-hmm. and that they had provided Captain McVeigh with an incomplete intelligence report. They had actually done some code breaking and they had found out that there was enemy submarine activity in that area along the route that the Indy and was going to take anyway. and they did not put that in the intelligence report that oh. they sent to him. Also, they, in this declassified information, that was released, it came out that three different distress signals had been received because that had been said along the way. They kept saying, well, maybe they sent them, but nobody had ever received uh-huh. them, right? Three different distress signals had been received and ignored. The book said one commander was drunk, one was sleeping, and one thought the Japanese were trying to trick him. Oh, no. So the U.S. Congress exonerated Charles McVeigh for the loss of the USS Indianapolis in October 2000. And on December 20th, 2018, all the crew members of the Indy were collectively awarded a Congressional oh. Gold Medal. Mm. Yeah. Wow. Oh my gosh. I know. I mean, I could not believe it when I was reading that. So who do you trace it back to then in your research? Who would you, if you could quote unquote pin it on somebody, who would you say? Those superior officers? The superior officers knew it was dangerous territory Mm -hmm. and didn't tell the captain. Mm Mm-hmm. I'm only using two sources, guys. Sure. But the one source said he had requested some type of escort for and protection. They and they didn't give it to him. So 
then you have just bad circumstances. You're in a war. You're yeah. in enemy territory, yeah. and a, a submarine was there. So part of it is circumstances. Yeah. You know, you're in a war, and these things happen. But if you're gonna try to say somebody's at fault, the superiors that knew knew. Mm-hmm did not provide him information that could have helped him. Could have saved their lives. And then, I I don't know if I said this, but to come circle back around again, that was a point of contention during the trial that the Navy kept saying, well, you know, there's evidence that you guys like created a distress signal, but there's not really any Uh, evidence that it was was. actual, it was possibly sent, Mm -hmm. but but we don't have any evidence that anybody ever got it. So were they lying then? Well, they must, some people had to be be covering it up. These declassified, Classified documents at least say there's truth. So who knows who was actually in the trial doing this testimony? Did they know? Yeah. Did they know? Yeah. Or were they telling their truth? You right. know, who knows? Right. But that uh, opposing captain, the Japanese the submarine Japanese, commander, Japanese, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. he fascinates me. It's almost like what you were talking about with Frank and the sharks that when they got away, he was like, well, this is just the game. It's almost like what this fella is thinking. Well, it's just war. You know, we were doing what we had to do in war and it's not his fault. Right. You know what I mean? Right. It's just almost he, like he's treating it like, well, this is separate. It's not personal. He was able to compartmentalize. Yeah. You know, I yeah. did what I had to do in that situation. Yeah. But now that this is other thing is happening, mm-hmm. I'm going to to tell you the truth of it. Yep. Yeah. Well, that's that's that what is I found out. I couldn't get over it. Well, on a very different note, I think that brings us to come from away. Oh, okay. Yeah. Anybody who listened to our episode could tell that this one really touched us. Mm-hmm. I came into it not knowing much about the circumstances or the musical either one and I just loved it it really it really impressed me so I wasn't surprised to see that we had a lot of great response from listeners people enjoyed it people related to it people had seen the the play and the musical and so there was a lot of positivity Mm -hmm. but we were surprised Ashley and I talked about this we were surprised by a theme that emerged on our social media Mm -hmm. specifically our Scandal Water podcast Facebook page because we had so many comments from our friends in Canada mm-hmm. who were bringing to light something that we actually did address in the episode. Yes. They were they were mentioning all the other, the other towns. surrounding towns that had shown that same kindness and generosity as Gander did when 9-11 happened and, and we had those strangers who needed to be taken in. Mm-hmm. So what they were, I think, speaking to was that idea of narrative economy that we had brought up within the episode. We talked about the fact that, you know, the playwrights acknowledged so many other towns were doing this. That Gander was a representative. Yes, Gander represented all the towns who were doing this and hundreds of people, if not thousands, I have no idea. But all these people were involved in showing this kindness and generosity and they had to try to represent that through Mm -hmm. 12 or 14 Mm -hmm. cast members. Mm-hmm. And so it was it was a challenge. But these listeners who added their comments, it just affirmed again to us how widespread this kindness was. And we wanted to take a moment because they couldn't be highlighted in that musical, in that play. We thought, you know what, let's take a few minutes and highlight mm-hmm. some of these towns, mm-hmm. some of these people who were part of what happened on 9-11 way back then. And so I'm going to share some of those comments and stories yes. with you right now. So regarding the little town of Twillingate, 
Diane Leggy said, quote, Twilling Gate also sent in soups, blankets, plus many other things to help accommodate the wonderful people and animals stranded during such an uncertain time. Primrose Burton shared how Springdale sent in care packages, toiletries, toys, and other items. Linda Hines Ryan reminded us that Norris Arm and Lewisport were also involved, and she referred to them as small towns with big hearts. Mm. Allison Leite? shared this story. Quote, I cannot wait to see this for the first time. Please don't forget our little towns of Glenwood and Appleton, just 15 minutes west of Gander. I remember our family hosting a young couple who still send a Christmas present to my mom every year. That's neat. Yeah. Roxanne Feltham and Shirley Williams Parsons were two of several who reminded us that Gambo was another little town who offered great hospitality during that time. And then Bernice Stroud was from Glovertown, which shared that she and her sister were in Gambo every day helping along with so many others from her town of Gloverton. Elizabeth Elliot Oram was one of those people and her comment said, quote, we cooked meals and helped serving Gambo. Enjoyed every minute doing it for them. And then finally, Maisie V. Janes, also from Glovertown, mentioned all the sandwiches and items that mm, they sent. That's so neat. I'm so glad to hear of those other people who didn't get mentioned. Yeah. Those and other th- towns. And thank you. Yes. Thank you guys for writing in and sharing these stories with us because we just love hearing about it. We do. Yeah. It just makes the story mm, more personal and mm-hmm. more real. Right. I think that brings us to Chicago. All right. Well, I have a small thing about Chicago, which that was All That Murder and Chicago She Wrote, which is episode 44 and 45. As of June 25th, 2022, Chicago is only the second Broadway musical to ever hit 10,000 performances. And if you know me, my immediate follow-up question was, what was the first? And that (laughs) was The Phantom of the Opera. And it hit that milestone on February 11th, 2012. So congratulations to the cast of Chicago. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. I saw the same thing. And in fact, I saw a little clip of their curtain call at the end and of their And it was like Fosse's 20- birthday. Yes. 95th birthday for Fosse. That was cool. Which I'm sure that they decided to do it on that mm-hmm, date mm-hmm. rather than wait to the 25th sure. just because they wanted to acknowledge his birthday. But it was it was very cool to see that. One other piece of exciting news related to Chicago. You guys will recall that we pulled a lot of information from that excellent book, The Girls of Murder City by Douglas Perry. And we have a bit of exciting news. We reached out to the author and we were sharing with him how excited we were, how much we enjoyed his work. And we offered our two episodes in case he would like to listen. And he was kind enough to do so. He did. And responded. He even allowed us to share a little piece of his email. So here are some words from Douglas Perry. I listened to the two episodes and really enjoyed them. You and Ashley make a good pair and your discussion of the murder cases and the movie was fun and insightful. Thank you for crediting my book throughout. That's very much appreciated. So, of course, Ashley and I were beyond excited. We're very <laughs> muted now, but we were very excited. Very excited. And so... There may have been squealing. I there, don't there, know. You know. Yeah. <laughs> but we asked Mr. Perry if perhaps he might mm-hmm. like to speak with us. And he mentioned he has another book about Elliot Ness. So you might just be hearing a little interview mm-hmm. down the road with From Douglas Perry. Perry. The book should be arriving for me today. So I'm going to start reading it. ASAP. And, and I'm planning to pick it up this weekend. Woo-hoo. 
So, all right, just a little teaser for yes. season two. Yes. All right. So, regarding our episode six, Ashley actually found this fascinating little article that she shared with me. Mm-hmm. And so, I thought I would give a quick summary. If and that's the reason okay. that I'm not covering is because I've already exhausted my free, tr- <laughs> <laughs> my free, like you get a couple articles and I tried to open it and it wouldn't let me. I was like, darn it, Candy, have you got the free stuff? <laughs> Apparently, Candy's been paying for it. Well, I'm glad you shared the article with me, Ashley, because mm-hmm. I enjoyed it. Oh, good. Although it made me think a little bit because yeah. it was a little complicated. Oh, just a little. Intrigue? Was there intrigue? There was intrigue, oh. but there was also a lot of talk of ciphers and codes oh, and things. I like that stuff. Yes. So here's the deal, all right? There is this, they called it a beguiling and mysterious treasure mm. in the British Museum. It's a collection of sketches for jewelry and ornaments and other things. And these were pieces that were commissioned during the reign of Henry VIII from the artist Hans Holben. And remember, we mentioned him. He's the one who painted that portrait. Okay. He came up in our first episode. Okay. So some of these designs of jewelry and other pieces included ciphers or coded symbols. That is so exciting to me. Yes. And it would oftentimes have like the initials of Henry and his loves. Uh Some have never been decoded after all this time. Guys, get on this. Come on now. Well, some people are on it, actually, because this article is about a a lady named Vanessa Braganza, who is a PhD candidate in English at Harvard, and she was working on a chapter of her dissertation, and so she got intrigued. Did she crack the code? She did. She oh. thinks she has oh. on one particular okay. cipher. Okay. So she was writing a chapter on ciphers uh-huh. in Henry's court, and she looked up some of these images from what they refer to as the jewelry book, this uh-huh. collection of drawings, and she found this one. And she said it was like decoding a wordle or something. Uh But she finally figured out that she thinks it spells, here are the letters, and then I'll tell you her interpretation. H-E-N-R-I-C-V-S, Rex, R-E-X, and she thinks that represents Henry Henry the King. And then the other part of the symbol she thought said Catherine with a K. And so she assumes this is his first wife, Catherine of Aragon. Now, it gets more interesting. She argues that this pendant, which has this cipher on it that's in code, was commissioned not by Henry, but by Catherine during the time when she was trying, well, when he was trying to divorce her and marry Anne Boleyn Mm -hmm. and she wouldn't go for it. Vanessa, I'll call her Vanessa. Vanessa's contention is she thinks this was a way to assert her claim that she was still the true true wife and queen. Now, she's pretty sure that this is not one of the other Catherines because the spelling, right? It has the K. And she said there's a portrait of young Catherine of Aragon that shows her wearing a choker with the letter K. because oh, I so, always thought her name was spelled with a C, but it was a K. Oh. Well, apparently it would go either it way. Go, okay, okay. But, but she's the only one who sometimes used a K. Okay. Plus, she also said that there are manuscripts Catherine signed and she did sign with a K. Ah. So she's convinced it was Catherine of Aragon. Now, why does she think that it was Catherine, not Henry, who commissioned the pendant? Well, she said that based on the dates that this artist, Hans Holbein, was at the court, she thinks it had to be around 1532, which was during the end of the marriage to Catherine Mm -hmm. when he was trying to get free because he secretly married Anne Boleyn in January of 1533. So the time frame. Gotcha. Now, she further goes on to say, quote, it really helps us understand Catherine as a really defiant 
figure Mm. because this is what came out in the article. Women at that time, we talked about this, they were so powerless in terms of their rights, how they were treated, what they were able to say, I will do or I won't do, all those things. So they would often use these ciphers or these codes to kind of express themselves Mm. because then they were safe. It's underground. It's underground. Mm. And it was a way for her to basically defiantly be like, no, Henry and I are still together even when he's saying we're not. I'm still the queen. Yes. Now they don't know if it was ever created. Like these sketches may have just been ideas and commissions that never came to sure, pass. But she still wanted it to be created. She wanted it to I be I wonder if there. Vanessa felt like she was in a national treasure movie when she cracked that cipher though, you know? Can you imagine? One other little side note. It's said in the article that Henry, of course, we've said this, was well known for trying to obliterate all traces of his ex-wives after he was done with them. And we know that he destroyed all of Anne Boleyn's whatever, documents, mm-hmm. all the things that were associated with her jewelry, whatever it might be, letters, portraits. But even with her, he couldn't fully succeed. They talked about that some of the symbols connected with her in the building, he missed. So here's what it said. In the chapel at King's College, Cambridge, their linked initials are visible on the elaborately carved choir screen. But at Hampton Court in London, visitors can still see empty spots where they were chiseled away, (laughs) along with a few examples that were overlooked, still connected with a lover's not that's talking about him or trying to erase Anne Boleyn gotcha. from symbols and ciphers and things. So I loved the idea that this was kind of almost what's the word a feminist move that these women were making. You can't erase me. Yes, exactly. So here's one last comment from the article. While the pendant in the jewelry book may not radically change the story, according to Reganza, it does suggest how much more of the silenced voices of Henry's wives and the other women of the period remains to be found. And I love that because, again, that's what we talked about so much in mm-hmm. Six is letting them tell Speak their, their side of the story. Yes. yes. Ooh, that was good stuff. I'm so glad you found that article. I am too. And it just came out just a couple days, just a couple days ago. Very neat. Well, I think I have the Top Gun. You do. All right. So I feel the need for a sequel. Top Gun, <laughs> Maverick, and the real Top Gun, episode 47. So one thing you asked me to look at is sunglasses. No new news on the sunglasses sales. They're still up by 40% as reported in our original coverage. Okay. So there's that. Now, here's the stuff. Okay. we st- So we started our update episode with a copyright controversy. And unless you've got something, we're going to end it with a copyright controversy. Ooh. But here, here's some, some more stats for you. According to Box Office Mojo, as of August 3rd, 2022, Top Gun Maverick has grossed $651.6 million, $671.6 million international, $1.3 billion worldwide. That's billion with Isn't a that crazy? B. And is the number one film of 2020. And as of August 10th, which a little clue, today is August 11th when we're recording this. So yesterday, Maverick soared past Titanic and is Mm. now the seventh highest grossing film in the U.S. What are the top 10, I hear you ask? (laughs) (laughs) I shall tell you. It is Star Wars Episode 7, The Force Awakens. That's the first. Avengers Endgame, Spider-Man No Way Home, Avatar, Black Panther, Avengers Infinity War, Top Gun Maverick, Titanic, Jurassic World, and the Avengers. So we got a lot of Avengers in there. Yes, we do. So globally, Maverick is the 13th highest grossing film of all time. There wasn't a list within the article, but it said it had beaten out the likes of Frozen and Skyfall and the last Harry Potter film. Wow. Which is pretty big stuff. Yes. 
And now they're facing a copyright lawsuit from the heirs of the man whose 1983 article inspired the original film. So Explain. I will. I'm pulling uh, most of this information from an IndieWire article, although other articles I found had pretty much the same thing, but I'm mostly going to be quoting from this article. Okay. And I'm going to use this phrase for the first time in our podcast for all you kids out there. Here's the tea. <laughs> <laughs> nice. Thank you. So just about 40 years ago, Paramount secured the rights to Top Guns, plural, an article published in the May 1983 issue of a magazine that has since stopped publishing. I don't know what the magazine was called. It wasn't listed. The screenplay for Top Gun singular, was written by Jim Cash and Jack Epps Jr. However, the person who wrote the original article, and I am so sorry, I'm mostly probably going to mispronounce his name, Ehud Yane, was given a writing credit in the 1986 film because of his original article. It's right there on IMDb. I checked. It says it has his name and then in parentheses, magazine article, Top Guns. Okay. So he's got the credit there. Now I'm going to read from IndieWire directly. In 2018, Yane's heirs, which is his widow and his son, they filed for what's known as termination rights. So now they argue it is them, not Paramount, who currently owns the underlying rights to make any movies based on top guns. They claim Paramount did not ask for permission or pay them to make Maverick. Continuing from the article, quote, On June 6th, they ask a Los Angeles judge to immediately order Paramount to stop distribution of Maverick. Mm. They're also asking that the court rule that the 2022 film is derivative of the magazine article and therefore covered under their copyright ownership that Paramount did not have the rights to make and distribute the sequel and that they be awarded unspecified monetary damages, end wow. quote. Right. So when you first read this or hear about this, it could just sound like this family is after a piece of this billion dollar pie, right? But timing is everything in this case. If you'll recall what I just read, the family filed for termination in 2018, mm. several months before Maverick even went into production. Oh. Right. So in, in my opinion, Ashley's opinion, did they know it was going to go into production? Maybe. And maybe that's why they filed then. But they certainly couldn't have known it was going to be a billion dollar film. What's the termination notice, you may ask? I will tell you. <laughs> Again, I talk to myself when I'm writing this stuff too. Again, ac according to the article, quote, some deals give studio film rights to stories in perpetuity. However, there can be a caveat. After a set number of years, copyright holders of a work may recover copyright through a termination notice, which is what his family did. Production on Top Gun Maverick wrapped in 2019 and was supposed to open in June of 2020, and then it was pushed back again until July of 2021. We all know why it didn't open. It finally released May 27th of 2022. So, according to the Yanes, and I assume their attorney, they, the family, his heirs were granted termination rights on January 24th, 2020. They were? They were. So yes. legally, yes. Oh. They now retain. I think what it means is they now own that original article again. Okay. So it's now theirs. Okay. But anything that comes from that needs to go through them. Okay. That's what they're saying. So from the article again, quote, they allege that Maverick was completed in May of 2021, which means that Paramount needed to, again, license the rights to Top Guns, that original article, in order to make anything derivative of it. Their argument, which Paramount denies, is that without the article, Top Top Gun or Top Gun Maverick would not exist, end quote. So to put it in back to the future terms, Mr. Yane's family says that had Mr. Yane never written the article Top Guns, then Pete Maverick would never have been born. Hmm. Now, here's the counter argument from the entertainment attorney, Mark Litwack. After reviewing the case, I, I don't think he's on the case, but he just reviewed it. Right. He told IndieWire, quote, the article is not the screenplay and Paramount can argue that the article was basically just a story idea and nothing more. Mm -hmm. Ideas are not 
copyrightable. Right. But he then went on to say, it's not always clear when an idea is embellished enough, when it becomes more than an idea. It becomes a work of authorship. It is not a clear line. Right. End quote. So to put it in Maury terms, he says that Mr. Yane is not the father of Pete Maverick. <laughs> That's a little joke for you there. Yeah. Okay. However, he, Mark Litwack, also conceded, quote, it may be difficult to say this new sequel movie has nothing to do with the original article. That may be a hard sell. So what was Mr. Yane's original article about? It was a look into the Navy Fighter Weapons School in San Diego, a.k.a. Top Gun. According to the IndieWire article, he used a, quote, vivid narrative approach that captured the high-octane cockpit environment and camaraderie among pilots with nicknames like Possum and Yogi. <laughs> Here's some more from the article. Representing the Yanez is copyright attorney Mark Toboroff, who recently filed termination notices on behalf of the heirs of five Marvel comic book authors, including oh. Stan Lee. Disney sued in response, seeking to block the heirs from reclaiming their copyrights and claiming a cut of the Marvel profits, mm. end quote. Honestly, I don't remember if we talked about him in our January episode, but that sounds kind of familiar. Yeah, we did. Okay, that's what up. I thought. Of course, Paramount is denying all these charges because why wouldn't they? Yeah. I mean, Mark Litwack went on to say he feels the case will settle. That's what I think. But, quote, the threat of the plaintiffs actually getting an injunction and stopping distribution of the film or getting damages under copyright law, even if it's only a 10% chance, the consequences are pretty dramatic. Much as Paramount wants to pretend otherwise, they made a sequel to Top Gun after they lost the copyright. End quote. Wow. Yeah. So when you you commented a while back that the family didn't know it was going to be a billion dollar enterprise, if you will. I mean, they had to know it would make a fortune. I oh, mean, sure. You know, yeah, I, you know. So you know it's going to do know well. It's do but really you don't well. know it's going to be right. But you this know it's going to do well. Hit. But I think what it comes down to is, I mean, it doesn't even matter. I'm, I'm, I mean, I'm, that to me, it's kind of a non-issue, mm -hmm. right? It's just it's a matter of legality now. Yeah. And I started by saying this makes my brain hurt, and I'm saying the same thing now. Yep. It's like I would hate to be the one to have to determine all this because. I no. This is messy. Yes, it is. And that's actually, I, I actually didn't know about this before I went to see it because I had started reading the articles. And that's one of the reasons I told Brian, we got to go see this movie now. Because I thought, what if they win? And then this gets pulled because they were wanting to pull it from theaters, like wow. yank it right out. So we went to go see it before all this happened. I feel sure they're, they'll settle. Oh, I would hope but so. I think but the it could prevent a third one. make a lot of money. Mm -hmm. Yeah. But yeah. again, shouldn't they? Because is it theirs? If it was their heirs, you know, Mr. Yane in the first place. And then they said, after this amount of time, we want it back, please. And then just check with us or give us a, a cut of this. Because if our dad, our husband is the reason you guys are making these movies, and maybe he got something from the first one. I don't know. I didn't look into it. But it's it's his. It's his story. Well, it's so complicated yeah. because look at us. We sat there and gave a lot of information on Top Gun Flight School. They had all kinds of information on the Department of Defense mm -hmm. website. So if you're talking about pulling ideas about sure. this this flight school and its program anybody could do that now right but so, now this was in 1983 where right but i'm saying oh, what about Maverick? the mm -hmm. sequel yeah so that's where it's messy because yeah. you could argue again you can't copyright an idea yes. you could say i got this idea looking at the department of defense website but i think the issue but, is pete maverick exactly that's, that's where, where you have to trace it back yep. and also when
when you say they won their termination case, what exactly does that mean? Right. What was terminated? What was included within that particular lawsuit? I'm, I'm assuming, again, me assuming, is that it means that they now retain ownership of that original article. It's theirs again. The mm-hmm. copyright belongs to them, where Paramount bought it from them. So what they are saying is because we now re-own that original article, because this sequel is derivative of the original article, then we, we are we, we are producers. We should mm-hmm. be listed as producers or he should be listed as a writer. I don't know what their demands are, but they're saying, basically they're saying our family needs to be included in this. Yeah. And I, I don't know where I land on that Ooh. as far as are they right? Are they wrong? I it no sounds idea. like they're right, but I think they should settle. Goodness. Well, that certainly is interesting. That was some serious tea. So for something a little bit lighter, I have a story oh, for you, please. for all those listening. A little background is Candy and I try not to name any of our friends or locations in our stories, you may have noticed, um, unless it specifically pertains to what we're talking about or we have their permission. Just protect their privacy. Um, so you may remember in our episode about Top Gun, I told a story about going to the graduation party of a friend who was dressed like Rooster. Well, our friend Keith is a listener of the show. Hello, Keith. Hi, And he sent the episode to his son, from whom I got a phone call saying, I heard you were talking about me. (laughs) (laughs) And he laughed about it. And he said that I could name him and that I could post a photo of him in that his girlfriend Haley had taken of him in his sunglasses and his Hawaiian shirt and his little rooster mustache. (laughs) So I asked if he enjoyed the episode and he admitted that he cheated and only listened to the part about him. So come on. I know. So if you (laughs) if you know him, that's that's very him. But by the time this airs, he will have already left for the Air Force and a huge hole is going to be in my heart because through the drama program at our local school, I have known him since he was in the fifth grade. Wow. He was an ensemble dancer in the show Grease and he went on to play many, many roles and to work backstage and many more shows and is just basically to me, at least a beam of sunshine in human form. So to Josiah, I hope you carry that light and infectious joy with you in the skies and beyond and your cute little Hawaiian shirt too. Oh, nice. Yeah. Well, that was a good way to end. I think so. Yeah. So thank you. I guess this is it. This, this is, is the it. end of season one. I never would have expected mm-hmm. that we would be sitting here with 50 some odd episodes behind us. Yes. Talking about all this fascinating stuff. That's got to be like over 50 hours of content. Oh, yes. Yeah. Absolutely. Because a lot of them are over an hour. Yes. Guys, you're the ones who've made this possible. Mm-hmm. If you weren't listening, if you weren't encouraging us, if you weren't there, then then we wouldn't be here. That's right. So thank you. We hope you enjoy our September Rewind yes. episodes. And we look forward to talking some Halloween stuff with you yes. come October. Yes. And so I would like to propose a toast of cheers to our listeners firstly yes. and secondly to you candy because we would not be here had you not had the original idea and don't argue with me we are going to cheers you listeners we are going to cheers miss candy you're sweet thank you very much for all of this wonderful scandal waterness oh thank you you're welcome cheers cheers If you love what we do, please rate and review our show. Or you can become a supporter by making a donation through buymeacoffee.com slash scandalwaterpod. Whether a single gift or a recurring monthly donation, it would go a long way towards supporting our work and allowing us to keep the tea brewing. At our website 
www.scandalwaterpodcast.com, you can submit questions or your own story ideas, access our sources and show notes, see the merch we offer for sale, and more. You can join the Scandal Water community through our Scandal Water Podcast Facebook page or follow us on Instagram or TikTok at Scandal Water Podcast. This episode was executive produced by Candy Thomas, that's me, and Ashley Raymer Brown, that's me. It was researched and written by Candy Thomas and edited by Ashley Raymer Brown. A special thank you to Josh Martin, who wrote, composed, and performed the Scandal Water theme and other music. Matt C. Adams, who created the artwork, and Joshua Reith, who designed our website and provides ongoing technical support. As a reminder, this podcast is purely for entertainment purposes. The thoughts and opinions of the host during each episode of Scandal Water are their own and do not reflect the opinions of any future guests, advertisers, or clearly professional psychologists. Thanks for listening.